Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastak. Off the southern tip of South America, the remote and rocky Falkland Islands are home to one of the oddest birds of prey in the world, the striated caracara, which looks like a falcon, but acts a lot more like a parrot. Charles Darwin had to fend these birds off the hats, compasses, and valuables of the beagle. The Falkland Islands government had a bounty on their cheeky little beaks for much of the 20th century, and modern falconers have used their understanding of language to train them to do dog-like tricks. The other nine species of caracara that span the rest of South America are just as odd in their own ways. In his new book, A Most Remarkable Creature, Jonathan Myberg follows their unusual evolutionary path across the continent and describes his encounters with these birds over the past 25 years. Jonathan Myberg joins us from his home in Texas to introduce us to some new feathered friends. Thanks for talking to me. It's great to be here. So this is actually my second podcast episode all about birds. The first was ravens, um, and I didn't expect ravens and caracaras to be so similar, except for maybe in size. <laughs> Most people don't. I was as surprised as you. Yeah. I mean, like, as you point out in your introduction, I, I don't live south of the Rio Grande, so I'd never heard of the caracara before. How did you first meet these birds and what drew you to them? Caracaras are an interesting group of falcons. They're sort of a subgroup within the falcon family. And except for one species, they don't come north um, of the Rio Grande. So they're confined mostly to South America and there are 10 species. But I didn't know that when I met the first one that I ever saw, which was in the Falkland Islands back in 1997. Now, I was there because I'd uh, received a traveling fellowship from the Thomas J. Watson Foundation. So my project was uh, supposed to be a study of community life at the ends of the earth, which at that time, I was 21 years old. I'd never left the southeastern United States. And so I kind of looked at a map and went, well, that looks far away. <laughs> and one of the places that I went was the Falkland Islands, partly because I thought there would be a really uh, isolated and interesting human community there. What I hadn't reckoned with was the wildlife. And once I got there, I realized that you could go to places where you can see penguins breeding. That was something that I'd never imagined I'd ever see in my life. So I went to an island where I could see penguins. And as I was walking around this island looking at penguin colonies, I was suddenly approached by these strange birds that I'd never heard of, never seen before, and had no idea what they were. They were these big, dark birds of prey that like to run around on the ground as well as fly. They seem to hang out in groups and they came right up to me as if they had every right to be there just as much as I did and wondered if I might be useful in some way. <laughs> this is not the experience you're used to having with wildlife. You know, like the best you can hope for is that it's going to ignore you. You don't expect it to just start investigating you. And so in a way from that very moment was that was when they to me because I wasn't that interested in birds in particular. I mean, I thought penguins would be cool, but I didn't really know anything about the world of birds. Uh, but these guys kind of grabbed hold of me and said, you, <laughs> you're going to find out about this. Because <laughs> they looked at me, as I say in the book, like as if they, you know, demanded an explanation. And when I went back to Stanley, the one town in the Falklands, it's about 3000 people live there. 
I met a British ornithologist who was about to go to the outermost islands of the Falklands to do the first ever survey of breeding pairs of these birds. And the Falklands, uh, most people don't know this. I mean, if you even know where the Falklands are at all, which is they're down off the, off the tip of Argentina in the Atlantic Ocean. They're a set of about 800 islands. I had no idea there were so many. There are two major islands, which are where most of the farms and people live. Uh, but on the periphery of these islands, there's just this huge constellation of all these tiny little scraps of land. And these islands preserve conditions that are more similar to the way the islands were before people turned up. And people didn't turn up there until relatively recently, uh, only within the last couple hundred years. They're pretty much the only part of the entire new world besides the Galapagos that uh, Europeans actually quote unquote discovered. By visiting these places, you can enter a realm that's pretty much removed from us by thousands of years in time in most other parts of the world where the animals there don't have experience with you. They haven't decided on a way to deal with you. And this was the experience that I had meeting these things. Now, I didn't know this then. And Charles Darwin, who met them at about the same age as me in 1833, also didn't know this. And he was as baffled by their behavior as I was. They, were, they stole hats and compasses and other strange items from the crew of the Beagle. They would fly on board the ship and take them. They... Uh, he was really absorbed by their behavior and their personalities and such that he devoted more ink to describing them in the voyage of the beagle than he did to any other bird. And he wondered what they were doing in the Falklands. And apparently, except for a few islands off the tip of Tierra del Fuego, like Cape Horn, nowhere else. What were they doing down here at the bottom of the world? And why were they like this? And he kind of set these questions aside and no one had really picked them up very much since that time. So I thought, well, why don't I try to see if I can answer this? And finding that answer was sort of this little keyhole through which I could peer at this much larger world that just got bigger and bigger and bigger the more that I looked at it. And so 25 years later, here I am with this book to try to explain what these are, what they were doing there, and how they fit into the scheme of uh, life on Earth. One of the descriptions you use for the Karakara, which I loved was that they're like survivors of an ancient shipwreck determined to wring a living from the island any way they could. Well, the striated caracaras especially down in the Falklands. Now, on the on the South American mainland, there are nine other species of caracaras that are, are, are far more numerous. Uh, the striateds are the rarest of the bunch. And seeing as they're the, the southernmost birds of prey on earth, I mean, they live even on a little island called Diego Ramirez, which is south even of Cape Horn. It's the last point of land on the South American continental plate. And so they're, they're very extreme in a way. And in another way, they're also closer, I think, to their ancient home than any other falcon. But it's only 500 miles from Antarctica at that point. But they live around colonies of penguins and albatrosses and seals and, and because of their abundant resources of chicks and eggs and dead seal pups and all kinds of carrion and stuff that they can eat in the summertime. Now, in the winter, some of those resources are there, but the seabirds that breed in these offshore islands in the Falklands and down around Cape Horn uh, all go to sea during the winter, the austral winter, and they have no need to come back to land. They can drink salt water, they feed at sea. There's The only thing they need land for is breeding, and when they're not doing that, they're gone. But the caracaras cannot follow them. They can't swim, they can't drink salt water, they're stuck there. <laughs> so they've got to make it through this time by switching their diet entirely and figuring out and investigating anything that's new. And I think that's all the Caracara species are very good at identifying new opportunities. And some of them have 
have exploited food resources that almost no other birds are even interested in. But um, I think for this species in particular, uh, this attraction to anything novel um, has a, a purpose because the sea coughs up a lot of unfamiliar objects and it's really might be worth your while if it's the middle of the winter and you're, you need to eat um, to go and investigate anything that you haven't seen before because it might be food. It stretches the definition of what a bird of prey can be. You mentioned ravens. Um, they're much more like that. They're like sort of scavenging omnivores that are very good at understanding cause and effect. They seem to have a, a keen sort of emotional intelligence. And South America has no large crows, unlike the rest of the world. There are some jays in the tropics, but there are no big black crows anywhere. There's no crows, no ravens. And I think that's what's so surprising about why nobody's really written about them in depth. You know, Darwin spilled all this ink over them, pushed it aside. And then, you know, we talked about how the Caracara is sort of like a shipwreck survivor. One of the early documented encounters that you write about is actually striated Caracara's interacting with an actual shipwreck survivor, this American. Yeah, Charles Barnard, a sealer yeah. from New York, who, who turned up in the Falklands about 30 years before Darwin did, marooned on an island called New Island. He met these Caracaras and they started, two of them tried to eat the shoes off his feet and one of them stole the club he used for whacking seals and penguins over the head. And uh, he was both really annoyed by them. He called them the most mischievous of all the feathered creation, um, but also kind of... Uh, puzzled and amazed by them too. He kind of seems to have had a grudging respect for them. And his account of them interacting with him, when you think of it as an account of uh, a human and this animal meeting each other probably for the first time, it's just extraordinary. Mm -hmm. There are so few moments like that in recorded history. They've mostly receded into the, into the mists of time, you know, thousands of years ago. Yeah. I mean, it is really extraordinary. And that was the image of like this bird with a club just playing with it. That really got me. I was like, proportionally, that's like bigger than the bird. I've got a really good video of one playing with a pair of my hiking poles. And it just grabs <laughs> them and pulls them around and rolls them around with its feet and kind of pecks at them a little bit. And I'm like, you're going to walk away with those, bub? I mean, I've worked with scientists who study them. And even after you ban them and take blood samples from their wings and stuff them in a bag to weigh them, you know, all these indignities that are like alien abduction kind of stuff. Um, you let them go, and a lot of times they'll just sort of turn around, kind of ruffle their feathers, and then just come back and look at you again as if, like, what are you? <laughs> Some of them go back and get back in the trap again because the trap, you know, the way you trap them is just with basically a piece of meat nailed to the ground. Wow. You write about this one this one falconer in England, Jeff Pearson, who yeah. has had this very long relationship now with, with two birds, but one very smart bird in particular, Tina. Yeah. And he had a line in there about how it seems like striated caracaras don't really hold a grudge, which was remarkable. Yeah. Jeff is one of a series of zookeepers and falconers in England who keep striated caracaras. Now, I go in the book, I go into how on earth striated caracaras ended up in England, and it wasn't because of the war. But I'll, I'll leave that for the book because it's a great story in its own right. But the fact is, there are a surprising number of striated caracaras lurking in small falconry parks and zoos all over England, all over the British Isles, really. And uh, the keepers who live there, I mean, falconry parks, I mean, we have a few of them in the US, but they're not as common as they are there. They, uh, it's a, a place where birds of prey are kept in a series of small enclosures called mews, and they're uh, often brought out to uh, perform little demonstrations where like they'll fly to a glove in exchange for food or they'll, uh, they'll uh, strike at a bait that's twirled on a line if they're a falcon. Um, but getting them to do this is sort of part of this 
uh, you know, ancient art of falconry, which dates back thousands of years in human culture. But to to have a falcon or a or a hawk or any any bird of prey work with you, uh, usually you have to take it through a process called manning, uh, which is like breaking a horse. And if you if you read H's for Hawk by Helen McDonald, um, you remember the process of her trying to convince this goshawk that trying to live without her is pointless. It's forced to accept that she is an inevitable fact of its life now. This does not work on Caracaras. <laughs> they, they have to be allowed to do whatever they want, essentially. But luckily, what they want to do is interact with you, unlike other birds of prey. And so if you go to these parks and ask them, uh, ask people about striated Caracaras, they'll, they'll roll their eyes or sigh or, or suddenly get all moon-faced. Or um, they, The sense is that these birds are different. And in flying demonstrations, they do things that are way beyond the scope of other birds of prey. They'll uh, run through pipes and attack garbage cans, and they'll um, find hidden bits of food that have been secreted away in places they can't see. And Tina, who worked with this falconer named Jeff Pearson, Tina started playing games with Jeff before he realized what she was capable of, where she would, he dropped his keys one morning when he went into her aviary, and she picked them up and ran to the opposite corner of the aviary, and then started playing keep away with him. And he had to trade food for his keys. And from then on, every day, this is how each day started between the two of them. And he started doing other games with, with Tina, like the shell game. And in flying demonstrations, he would set out a series of colored balls and have the audience say which one she should pick up. And she would go get that one. Jeff could even say, wait, I've changed my mind. I want you to get the red one. And she would get the red one. And in a, a demonstration that's captured on a little bit of video that you can find online, uh, Jeff's assistant, Lynn, tosses a series of stuffed animals over his shoulder and then tells Tina to go find Nemo. And she jumps down, runs over, picks up Nemo in her beak, comes back, drops it in a bucket and gets a reward. I watched that one and that was like mind blowing. She seems Isn't so it? smart. <laughs> they all seem so I, smart. Yeah, You just get the sense of a, a much higher level intelligence working there. I mean, it's also, honestly, it's hard to say who's demonstrating whom. Tina seems to have Lynn pretty well trained. It's true. Striated caracaras in particular seem like a bird about which you cannot be neutral, you know? <laughs> but for all that, like, why on earth were they ignored, basically, for like 200 years, you know? Why did no one really pick up the thread? Well, they're one of many interesting living things um, in the world that is sadly underappreciated. Uh, and I think especially in South America, there's a great deal that uh, Western science at least has not learned about South American wildlife. One of the lessons I really came away with in writing this book was that if a big, charismatic, fascinating bird of prey and its equally fascinating relatives uh, haven't attracted very much attention, good grief, what's waiting that isn't so obvious as that, <laughs> you know? Uh, I do think there is a little bit of a, uh, there's a strange force field around the caracaras in that because they don't act like other birds of prey, uh, people who tend to gravitate towards raptors because they're dignified and um, graceful and, um, you know, killers uh, sort of don't know what to do with them. They, they, they seem to fall outside the, the usual boxes. Somebody wrote, I think it was Leslie Brown and Dean Amidon said about one of the species that it is difficult to imagine a less falcon-like bird of prey. Uh, and 
there's a there's sort of almost a prejudice against them actually as it's kind of like they're uh, another scientist said to me they're dirty birds they're bad falcons you know people don't want to get near them so that may also be a, a factor they don't fit into the boxes that uh, some people like to put birds of prey in yeah i think that too they they seem a little bit like us in a way and especially yeah, we hate way- animals like us <laughs> <laughs> like you think about the animals that have have learned to deal with people really well you know rats and squirrels and cockroaches and you know pigeons i mean how often have you heard pigeons referred to as winged rats I mean, which is a slur on pigeons and on rats and you're like no they're they've they figured out how to deal with cities i mean i can hardly figure out how to do that and what they do is astonishing but we really don't like it when animals do things without our permission or take advantage of things that we've constructed environments that we've built uh, without uh, doing it in the way that we want them to. And the striated caracaras and the Falklands were protected by the fact that they bred on islands that people just did not go to very much, if at all. So they managed to hang on, uh, even though there was, at, a, at one time, there was a bounty on their beaks that the, the government placed on them in 1908. But that's not the attitude that everyone has had towards caracaras. I mean, I, I mentioned in the book that, that you know, Amerindian people who've been in South America for far longer than Europeans often kind of venerated them in a way, like only the Inca emperor was permitted to wear mountain caracara feathers uh, in his headgear, his mascapaicha, it was like a crown. Then in other places, they're sort of tricksters. They have kind of legendary associations. Carancho, who is a, a crested caracara, a different type of caracara, has um, mythological associations for the, the, the Toba people in, uh, in, the, in the Chaco region, which is like in northern Argentina and Uruguay. Um, where he was responsible for giving people the gifts of fire and medicine. Uh, the, in fact, even the Mexican eagle um, may be a caracara in disguise because that symbol is taken from the, uh, the bird that the Aztecs believed their ancestors saw sitting on, a, on top of a cactus on an island in Lake Texcoco and they decided to found Tenochtitlan there, which later became Mexico City. That's what I like so much about the book is that there's all these different threads that come together and you really get a sort of like a a faceted picture of this very unusual animal. They have been revered. They have been despised. Now they are being preserved through various scientific efforts. So like, what do you think is the future of these birds and of our relationship with them? Well, I mean, it depends partly on the species. Striated caracaras face a problem in that they live on islands, and islands are going to get smaller. It's just inevitable. And one of the questions that you ask yourself when you meet them is, why isn't this bird everywhere? This seems like the kind of thing that we would see in the city, right? Like Mm -hmm. you'd see crows in the city, you'd see pigeons in the city, and there are some striated caracaras in England who've escaped, and a couple of them have done really well. uh, There was one bird, Louis, who got out of the uh, London Zoo a couple of years ago and spent two weeks on the lamb in North London, where he was seen walking down the Kilburn High Street and, quote, ripping into a whole cooked chicken. I don't know where he got that from. And when the zoo managed to get him back a couple of weeks later, they said he seemed none the worse for wear. So what are they doing stuck on these islands? I think part of the answer to that is just geography. There's just no more land down there. So they're kind of marooned. I think it, it may not matter how clever they are. If you sailed from Tier, the east coast of Tierra del Fuego due east, you would, the next land you'd hit would be the west coast of Tierra del Fuego. It's that most of the land in the world is concentrated in the north. The thing that stunned me about this book, would, or that stunned me about the research for the book, is I hadn't realized how different South America and North America are. 
their their wildlife is different, their geology is different, their ecology is completely different. And the reason is because they're basically strangers to one another. These two continents were separate for more than 100 million years. And during 30 million years of that time, South America was isolated by ocean on all sides of it, like Australia. And so when they met, which is relatively recent in geological terms, three to five million years ago, this exchange began of uh, living things from North America and South America to and from one another uh, that's still going on today. And it, it, but it was like a like two planets colliding. It's incredible. One paleontologist called it one of the most extraordinary events to ever happen in the whole history of life. So is that moment when these two continents collided, is that when we get this weirdo bird? Where did the Caracara come from, from an evolutionary perspective? Well, you kind of have to read the book to learn the answer to that question because it's a complicated answer. But um, the essentially the falcons themselves, which are a radiation of birds, they're a group of birds that we think of them along with like hawks and eagles and other birds of prey. It turns out that they're actually more closely related to parrots. There was probably a common falcon parrot ancestor that lived in, I think, Antarctica back when it was warm. And the falcons seem to have made their way up into the ancestors of falcons, made their way into South America diversified there. The greatest diversity of falcons today is still in South America by far. One small lineage of falcons, however, made its way into the northern world and expanded there and radiated rapidly through um, fairly recent times. And those are the ones that you and I are familiar with when we talk about falcons, like a peregrine falcon or a kestrel or a merlin, these more familiar hunting birds. But the falcons that remained in South America have very different lives and very different minds and very different ways of approaching the world. And the Caracaras are part of them. There's also a very mysterious group called forest falcons that almost nobody knows anything about. And, and there's one called a laughing falcon that eats snakes. And there's a tropical species called red-throated Caracaras, which eat almost nothing but wasps nests and live in large family groups um, and raise one chick at a time. And they do elaborate territorial displays, kind of like a troop of monkeys or something. They have bright red eyes and bare red throats and don't look like a bird of prey hardly at all. They're just one of the most bizarre raptors on the, on the planet. And they're also Caracaras. And they have that Caracara kind of intelligence. It's, it's just a far more diverse group uh, than you would think. I did have a lot of fun imagining an Antarctic parrot while reading that portion of the book. <laughs> well, Antarctica, you know, was not always the way that we think about it now. In fact, most of its existence as a separate continent, it was warm and covered with forest. Um, the great cooling didn't begin until about 30 million years after the Cretaceous extinctions. When South America and Antarctica finally split, they were connected by this little tendril of land, which you can still very easily imagine if you look at the the tip of South America and the Antarctic Peninsula sort of curling up towards it. It looks like they're trying to, to grab onto each other when in fact they're, they're drifting apart. When that broke through, the Antarctic circumpolar current was created where the seas could flow around Antarctica unbroken. And that uh, these cooler waters, then this, this current of cooler water keeps out warmer water from the north and it started to cool down the entire continent. Right. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I think one of the reasons why looking at birds like the striated caracara or just like, you know, magnolias even, yeah. you know, these things that remind us of when things looked a lot different and they're going to look a lot different in the future, too. So exactly. To yeah. All, everything is uh, every living thing is on a journey mm -hmm. toward we don't know what um, from we don't know where, <laughs> but we can, you know, we can, we can learn about these things. We can try to figure out, 
try to reconstruct these stories, but it makes it all a big detective story. You can look at, I mean, if you've seen a possum in your neighborhood, they walked up from South America. They were part of that great exchange. The same is true for porcupines. The same is true for armadillos. Those are three South American animals that have come up into North America and do really well, not just in the continent itself, but also around us, near us. There is one other caracara species that's been introduced to another place, actually, with little chimango caracaras, which are common throughout the southern part of South America. They're um, like they're sort of sandy-colored, almost inconspicuous little hawk-looking birds. But they, uh, as the hero of my book, William Henry Hudson, said, um, you know, a species so cosmopolitan in its habits would have a whole volume to itself in England. Being only a poor foreigner, he's had no more than a few unfriendly paragraphs bestowed upon it. But this species was introduced to Easter Island, believe it or not, rapidly, way off the coast of Chile. I think maybe with the idea that it was going to somehow control rats or mice. Uh, Chimango caracaras have very little interest in rats or mice, but they do like raiding chicken coops. And uh, the people in, in Rapa Nui call them Manu Toke Toke, which is thief bird. They've done well there. They're one of four land bird species you can now see on Easter Island. Would it be a terrible idea to introduce the striated caracara elsewhere? Yes and no. I mean, it, it would be very risky for the caracaras because mm -hmm. you'd think there'd be a large margin for error and that many of them wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily understand immediately how to, to make use of a new environment. On the other hand, in a broader sense, I think where, where conserving wildlife is concerned, we're going to have to start making choices like this, that are we, where we can't just set some land aside for them, um, where we can't really protect them from us by keeping them out in some kind of imaginary wilderness, which is swiftly vanishing. Um, if we want them to live, and it is up to us in some ways, um, we may have to invite them in with us. Say, well, if you're going to live, you <laughs> have to live here. Uh, so I don't know. I, I mean, I speculate about this some in the book with my tongue in cheek a little bit, but I do think some imagination is going to be required uh, if you're going to keep animals like this alive. Right. And I think your book is a testament to why we'd want to keep them alive, because I think we have a we have a lot to learn from these birds. Yeah, I'm hopeful. You know, when you think about the friendship that developed between Jeff and Tina, when, when Tina died, Jeff was just inconsolable. And he has a, another bird now named Evita, who I meet in the book. But their minds are so different. Physically speaking, the last time birds and humans shared a common ancestor was almost 300 million years ago. There were these things called amniotes that, you know, probably were swamp dwelling creatures that laid eggs, sort of amphibian like. It's been a very long time. And if you consider that we've been on separate journeys during that time, you could say that it's been 600 million years, more than half a billion years between our lineages. And yet, even that distance can be bridged and these two different creatures can be friends. Because birds have evolved their own forebrain out of a different part of their brain than ours did, but it performs the same kinds of functions. That's what stunned me. There are links in the show notes to Jonathan Myberg's new book, A Most Remarkable Creature, as well as to some photos of these beautiful birds. And the lone video of Tina the striated caracara in which she finds Nemo. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp.